You're listening to The Right to Be Catholic with Sean A.R. Brought to you by the Eastern Catholic Re-Evangelization Center. Welcome everybody to the Right to Be Catholic podcast where we tackle everyday issues that we as Catholics face in our modern world today. I'm your host, Catholic speaker and advocate, Sean A.R. So today's show is going to be an awesome one. Uh, it's, a, it's a topic that we're going to talk about that's very near and dear to my heart. And that is the Chaldean rite of the Catholic faith. So living in America, we're always exposed to the Latin rite, which is beautiful. But there are so many other rites in the Catholic faith. To be uh, exact, there are actually 24 rites in the Catholic faith. And all are in full communion with each other. So each rite has their own like traditions and ways. And in this specific episode, we're going to discuss the Chaldean rite, uh, the differences we have, the history, our mass. I've mentioned it many times uh, throughout other episodes. I am um, one of the uh, followers of the Chaldean rite of the Catholic faith. So this is something that's near and dear to my heart, and I just want to talk about it throughout this episode. The quote I have that goes with this uh, episode today actually comes from a Eastern rite saint. His name was Marnarsa, and he was also known as the harp of the Holy Spirit because of the way he would... Uh, talk about his faith was very poetic. And he lived around 399 um, to 502 AD. So uh, the quote that I want to mention, it comes from him and it goes, on the mysteries of the church, my thoughts mystically pondered. And I desire to reveal the thought of the heart by the speech of the mouth. By the speech of the mouth, I desire to tell of all their greatness and with words, to depict an image of their glory. Upon their glory, my mind gazed narrowly, but dread seized upon me and left me motionless. I stood still, for I, for I was disturbed, and I began to cry out. I gave woe to myself, and with fear I turned back. The Spirit by itself, beckoning, encouraged me to enter the Holy of Holies, into the Holy of Holies of the Glorious Mysteries that I may reveal the beauty of their glory to the sons of the mystery. Here, then, the mystery that is explained to you. That was a beautiful quote. And again, it came from an Eastern Rite saint. I thought it would be fitting because we're going to be talking about one of the Eastern Rites today, uh, the Chaldean Rite. Without further ado, though, I want to introduce our guest who is coming to us all the way from Australia. And that is Father Matthew Zaytuna. Father, how are you? I'm really well, Sean. How are you? Good. What time is it over there in Australia? Right now, we just uh, passed the 10 a.m. mark on Friday. How about you? Yeah, we're still 8 o'clock on Thursday, 8 o'clock at night on Thursday. So we're just a little bit different. Yeah. So if anything happens here, I'll make sure to send you a message to warn you for the future. Thank you. I was actually asking, Father, before we started, I was like, hey, Father, when the lottery numbers come out, let me know. See if they... We can probably, you know, work on something that we started laughing about that. Uh, Father, so I know you're originally from um, Detroit, Michigan. Well, you know, from West Bloomfield. So when did you go to Australia? I got here approximately like nine to ten months ago. Um, and the idea was that the bishop here reached out to my bishop in the States, Bishop Francis, and uh, asked for help, seeing that there's so many English-speaking young priests, a part of a diocese in, in the uh, eastern half of the U.S., and he asked for help uh, with a priest to be able to help the English-speaking youth here uh, to connect with them, not just on a language level, but on a mental level, uh, being from the West. And so I've been working with uh, the youth from Sydney, from Melbourne, or as you would say, Melbourne, and then also from Auckland, New Zealand. So I've been uh, flying around here and there, and it's been a very big joy for me. I'll be uh, finishing up. The expectation is early June. Nice. And I, I actually was talking to you the other day about this. I was so excited to hear that you guys just did your first Kairos retreat there, correct? Yeah, I know that's near and dear to your heart, uh, as you are one yeah. of the big ambassadors of bringing the Kairos retreat to the Chaldean community. So, uh, yeah, we yeah, did no, I, It was thoroughly successful. I, I'm so happy to hear that. With all glory to God, you know, he just used me as an instrument. Uh, so, 
Father Matthew, you know, and I were talking earlier and we were talking about how, you know, how you had this passion and it's, it's a passion of mine too, but obviously you're the expert in this area. That's why I have you on this uh, episode today, but tell me a little bit about your journey and how you came to, you know, know and love and learn more and more about the Eastern Rite faith. Sure. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm an expert yet. <laughs> Hopefully I'll get there, but I do have a passion and uh, I bet, I, I bet. I guess I know more than a lot of the Western-born Chaldeans. Uh, but uh, when I was in seminary, before I entered, I didn't even know one word in, in our language. Uh, I, was, I was raised as an American, but uh, I was there that uh, two particular priests had a big impact on me. One is alive. His name is Father Andy Yonan. He's in California at this time, uh, diocese there. And another was killed in 2007, Father Rahid. And really, uh, they opened my eyes to like, the beauty of the treasures that exist in our right, with the prayers, with the richness of our tradition. And, uh, and then Father Rahid, like someone as a Chaldean priest who was killed uh, for saying mass, you know, made me realize like what I'm going to be doing, which I'm doing now, but at the time what I'm going to be doing, saying mass, carrying the richness of our faith, I need to understand it. I need to own it. And I need to know if I'm willing to die for it. Furthering that, honestly, it comes down to this, Sean, in our community, faith is not separable as a, as a characteristic. Everyone has that. When they're younger, it's been something a part of who we are for the past 2,000 years. And honestly, uh, because of that, it's been the center of, of our identity. And if I want to understand who I am and I'll understand how to communicate that to others as a priest, then I need to understand my faith. I need to understand the richness of it. So that was a big reason why I care about like learning about the meaning of our mass, the meaning of certain actions, the meaning of certain traditions, uh, because that teaches me who I am, where I come from, and how I can be proud of that and share that with others. So that's where it started in the seminary, and it's still on fire, and it's still moving on, and I'm still learning and enjoying it. That is so beautiful. You know, a lot of the things you said right now, uh, you know, reminded me of why I'm, I'm very passionate about our Chaldean right, because, you know, everything everything we do has our faith ingrained in it. And like our Chaldean people were such ancient people and to have our traditions ingrained in our mass and our, in our ways of life and everything we do, it's just so beautiful. And I always find it like difficult when people tell me that, you know, like, Oh, why are you so um, proud or, you know, involved in your Chaldean community and Chaldean faith? I said, well, if you knew what I knew, you would also do the same. And another question so I would um, sorry to be negative, but some people, why aren't you proud? You yeah, know? why aren't you proud? A lot of people exactly. need to hear that question. Why aren't you proud? You know, uh, they're just, um, they're American born and they're just, I don't know if they feel like they associate this with the, uh, grandma stories, you know, old school kind of stuff. I don't know. There, it's a misunderstanding of who we are. No, you know, it's crazy because, um, a funny story many, many years ago, I was, I forgot where I went, maybe a grocery store or somewhere. And I was shopping and this lady heard me speaking Chaldean. I, I must have been speaking to my mom or dad, asking him something about like, maybe, hey, how do you say uh, Bamiyan English? Like, oh yeah, it's okra. You know, so I was must have been asking something like that. And she, she turned to me, she asked me, do you mind if I ask you, you know, what were you speaking? And I said, well, I was speaking an ancient language. It's called Chaldean. And when I said that, her eyes lit up. And I guess she had been studying uh, about our people for many years in college back in the days. She was an older woman, maybe like in her 60s or 70s. And she was like, can I just hear you speaking Chaldean? And I want to shake it. You guys still exist? I'm like, yeah, we're still around. There's a whole bunch of us. So it was pretty cool to see that, you know, the people who know history, who studied history, know that there's a richness to our people. And I just love that we have our own right in the Catholic faith. So as I was talking earlier uh, in the beginning of the podcast, I am correct, right? There are 24 different rites in the Catholic faith. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. 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 So just us, uh, well, here in, here in Michigan, in America, so being part of, you know, um, the church here, we were like ingrained and raised in the Latin rite. I myself went to Catholic schools growing up and there are no Eastern rite Catholic schools that, that I know of at least. So I went to like Our Lady Queen of Martyrs and I went to Brother Rice High School and those are all Latin rite. And there's nothing wrong with it. I loved it. And I learned both, but, you know, growing up as well, my, my parents, not only did I take first Holy Communion in my church at school, 
but I also learned it at Mother of God as well because they wanted me to learn both rights. And back then I didn't understand it, but now I really appreciate that. Yeah, um, first off, a right here, the way we're talking about it, so it doesn't mean that there are different faiths, but there are different forms and modes of expression through tradition and sometimes language um, and, and culture uh, uh, professing the same faith. So when St. Thomas went to India, you know, he didn't start speaking Hebrew to them. He baptized their culture and spoke in images and language uh, and, and figures that they can understand. And eventually, because he also dropped off a couple of disciples in Mesopotamia, uh, we had a rite that formed, which is called the Chaldean rite. And the same with the other disciples who went to different places. So our rite in particular is called the Chaldean rite. Um, and it has existed since, as you mentioned, ancient times. It's one of the most unique traditions of all the church. And uh, uh, we have a lot to talk about. I guess that's why I'm here. Yes, thank you. And I want to thank you again for coming on this uh, podcast. So the first thing I want to ask you is I, I want to throw a few questions at you and I want to get your thoughts on them. Uh, what is the difference between well, a few? I know there's not a lot, but there are a few differences between our Chaldean rite and, our, and, and the Latin rite. So um, first off, just to reiterate one point that they are both expressing the Catholic faith. Now, to use an analogy, if you have a diamond and there's 24 facets to that diamond, it's as if the Chaldean rite is one of those facets and you look in and you see the same center, but from that perspective. The Latin rite is its own perspective. Armenian, Greek, Coptic, Byzantine, you can use the same for all the rites. Now, for us, uh, uh, I, I usually caution, not caution, but... I, I don't want to say that the Latin rite is the standard bearer because, uh, first off, uh, in, in around the thousands and, and post thousands AD, early thousands AD, our numbers far outnumbered the Latin rite. We were spreading, and uh, there are still to this day, if you look it up, Nestorian, which is our church, used to be called the Nestorian Church of the East. Nestorian ruins are in China. We had Mongolian oh, wow. patriarch. We have our church stretched to India, as I mentioned. So, um, nevertheless, some differences. Uh, again, that's a fair, fairly common question I get because, uh, as you mentioned, you grew up in the context of the West. So you're exposed to Latin rites so frequently. So that's kind of like the standard that you notice. But uh, some differences are just, you know, obviously uh, expression of faith with regards to language, their, their standard language, their liturgical language is Latin, ours is Aramaic. Mm -hmm. uh, you can see some differences in um, traditions like, um, that, that exists in there, right? Ash Wednesday, which don't exist at all for us. A difference of how they number the days of Lent and how we do our liturgical calendar is completely different. Um, and as much as, you know, there's the, the major seasons of uh, what we will call Advent, Subara, Christmas, uh, Easter, and Lent, but then we, they have something called ordinary time for God knows how many weeks. We have something going on, an intentional time throughout the whole year. Uh, our mass has a lot of differences as well, like the when we give peace and how we give peace and um, uh, the ways that we express ourselves to God. A lot of our prayers say things like, have mercy on us. You know, although we are unworthy, uh, make us worthy, O Lord and God. Cleanse the stench and filth of our iniquity. We're not trying to be negative, but we know our place before God. And we see him as someone that's beyond us. More than focusing, for instance, in the Latin rite, the first thing that's done is to focus on self. You know, let's look within ourselves and confess our sins. Um, but for us, we do that throughout the whole Mass. And we, we can't stop mentioning it. So it's just a matter of approach, of how we see God. Um, there's other seasons as well, that full seasons that exist, like Ba'utha, three-day intense fast that exists in our right that doesn't exist in there. So again, they both point to the same exact faith, but they're just different expressions and modes of worship uh, that are uh, catered to the people and the location of that specific society. So like the people in Mesopotamia thought and acted and, you know, they had a school of thought in this way and, and the faith took it on its own influence there. Um, but it was the same exact teachings. So those are some of the changes, some of the, uh, rather the, uh, the differences between the Chaldean rite and the Latin rite. So you brought up a few points and I want to touch on a few of them, if you don't mind. Um, Specifically, the when you're saying about our mass, and you said how we give peace 
I actually had a friend of mine, an American friend, come with me to Mass one time, and he actually made this point. He said, you know, I love the way you guys give peace. I said, what do you, and I, I, and I never noticed it myself because I just did it. But when he explained, he said, you ever notice how, you know, in Latin right, in the Latin right Mass, we turn to each other and we give peace to each other, but yours, your peace starts at the altar and goes down the whole entire church. I was like, wow, I never, yeah, he's right. We do do that. So ours starts with like Jesus on the altar and comes down. It's not like we just turn like, hey, friend, you know, peace be with you. So I just love that. Uh, so that's one thing that, you know, I, I wanted to mention. And so something I wanted to uh, ask you about, she so says a few of the things we do are different than the Latin rite. For example, I know with the Chaldean rite, when we baptize um, a baby, we actually baptize and confirm them. Is that, I'm, I'm correct in that, correct? You are, yeah. So in the early church, even in the Roman Catholic Church, the sacraments of initiation, which are baptism, confirmation, and the Holy Eucharist, uh, were given at once, especially in the early church, early church because adults and mass were being baptized. So they were of age to receive communion as well. Uh, but that practice continues in a lot of the Eastern churches still today and was uh, practiced in ours as well. Possibly that was changed. I could be correct, wrong on this, but. I would uh, educated guests to say that that was changed maybe along the lines of uh, the early 1900s, late 1800s, probably when there was a massive amount of influence from the Roman Catholic church, they sent a lot of Dominican missionaries, but uh, yeah, today that's completely different in the Roman Catholic church. There is baptism and then Eucharist and then confirmation, which I, I think that's completely wrong. But, and then for our church, yeah. there's baptism and confirmation and we, maybe through the influence of the Roman Catholic Church. And I think it's not a bad influence. We give communion uh, when they pass the age of reason. Okay, nice. Thank you. All right, I give all these complicated answers. You're really good for having me on here. You've been doing a great job, by the way. So I just want to say no, thank, thank you. you. Support the good no, work here. thank you. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was asking around and everyone told me like, hey, why don't you go to Father Matthew? I'm like, you know, that's a good idea. I know him really well and I'm going to call him up. And then right away, I was so, I was so pleased when you said, Yes. When do you want to do this? I'm like, Wendy, like, how about Thursday? I'm like, let's do Thursday. <laughs> so it's pretty cool. Uh, so, so you mentioned Bautha as well, and then we'll touch on that uh, later on when we talk about our different traditions that we have. That the, and you talked about Ash Wednesday, and we'll just, if you could, just touch on those later on. Or, you know why we have one and why we don't celebrate the other. But something I wanted to ask you first is, what makes the Chaldean rite distinguished as Chaldean? Um, I'm not sure what you mean when you say that, uh, like what makes us Chaldean, in, uh, in general, like what you makes us different from everybody else? Correct. Yes. So why are we called Chaldean, the Chaldean, right? Versus something else? Um, so there's two ways I can answer that. Um, first off, the first way I understood it was, uh, what makes us separate from everybody else? And then the second way I understood it is why do we have the title Chaldean? Correct. Is yeah. that the second one you're asking? The, the latter, yeah. Why do we have the title Chaldean? It looks like through the history of the church when there was a division in the Church of the East, as we were considered, uh, you know, heretics, we were labeled as Nestorians, although I don't sh I'm not so certain that we were actually following Nestorius' teachings on Christology, but that's another topic. But there was a, more of a local or political dispute uh, with one of the patriarchs who was uh, along his line. His nephew was going to be the next patriarch. He was a young boy. It was a big disagreement, like, what are you doing? This is not right. And there was a split as a result. One of the uh, monks uh, decided to go to Rome and to appeal to Rome about this issue and express that he wants to join with a group of people, the Catholic Church. Uh, so uh, the, they were accepted, and they were given the name Chaldean in affiliation with the region of which the Chaldeans and Babylonians of old were uh, there, were located for their empire. Uh, geographically, um, the northern area of Iraq was more of the base of the Assyrian Empire, and the southern part of Iraq was the Babylonians. Yeah. Can you hear me? So this was around, yeah, yeah. This okay. was around 1551, correct? Yeah, I believe 1553. Okay. And that's when we converted from Nestorianism to 
Catholicism, well, correct? No, no. <laughs> Technically, uh, there was a group of people that that joined the Catholic Church from this Church of the East, right? The Historian Church of the East. And okay. uh, later on, that original group that never joined uh, actually joined the Catholic Church in the 1800s. And the group that joined the Catholic Church are now what we know today as the Assyrian Church of the East. Oh, wow. So okay. we weren't the originals that came to the, the Catholic Church. Not many of us and know all, that. Well, now we do. Yeah. So something else I wanted to talk about was, um, you talked about St. Thomas being, so St. Thomas was our patron saint, correct? Uh, he was what we call our first patriarch. And he came, and do we know the names of the disciples he had that went to Mesopotamia? By tradition, they were Ed Day and Mari, uh, uh, some of the 72. It's arguable if they actually were of the 72, but that's the tradition that we attribute to them. Beautiful. So earlier we were talking about our, um, our mass and some of the riches in the how, of, of our history, how it's embedded in the actual mass itself. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about that. So earlier when we were talking, we talked about certain prayers and um, things that we repeat throughout the Mass. And one of the, one of the prayers that I mentioned to you was uh, the La Humara. And I, I want you to tell a little bit about the story behind that prayer. And I, I actually love that story. All right, Sean. So this is a very commonly quoted story by many people. Um, I remember learning about this uh, early, early on in seminary. And uh, the story that's attributed to it is that in the 300s, 341 A.D., um, there was a great persecution of our people in the Persian Empire by uh, King Shapur II, who was a close friend of the patriarch, childhood friend, actually, at the time, uh, Marshim on Barsabai. And uh, okay. obviously there was issues between the Roman and the Persian empires over disputes of land, territory, and fighting each other to claim these territories. So they lost a big loss, uh, the Persian Empire. And uh, what's the easiest thing to do is to blame somebody else. So King Shapur right. blamed the Christians, as was a frequent uh, problem. We were oftentimes bullied um, because we were like a humble people. So uh, he told them, you know, as a result, I want you to pay more taxes to make up for this issue. You guys in particular are going to pay more taxes. And Marshim on Bar Sabai, the patriarch, was told to tell the people that. And he said, what do I look like to you, a tax collector? I'm a spiritual father. So that escalated. King Shapur was so offended that he said, fine, if you want to go that route, we're going to take it a step up, and you're going to have to worship my, my son, my God, the sun in the sky, the stars, or Zoroastrians, they worship the stars. Um, and so Marshimon um, denied it, and it escalated even further to one of the greatest persecutions our church has ever experienced. Um, uh, the 11th century historian al Masoudi says that I believe it was 120,000 members of the church were killed. Um, oh, wow. It, it turned into Marshawn being arrested, and on, um, I believe it was Holy Thursday, he witnessed um, bishops, deacons, priests, nuns, and faithful being marched in line, uh, getting beheaded. And uh, as they were doing that, uh, the tradition is that we associate the prayer La Chumara, to the people they were singing it as they were being beheaded. So it's a very ancient prayer. It's something that we pray at the beginning of Mass. There's a couple more things I want to say about it. It's a lot to say about it. Uh, so um, this, this was so inspiring by the soldiers, even the secretary of the emperor, King Shapur II, uh, ran in line and, and actually uh, was beheaded as well. And it was only when, I believe it was King Shapur was looking for him and they found his head without his body, that he stopped the killing. And the next day, after Marshum and Bar Sabai had to be subjected to seeing all his faithful being killed, um, he was also killed and beheaded. Marshum and Bar Sabai, the patriarch. Uh, this is 40 years of uh, start of 40 years of persecution from, uh, I know I said 341 AD, that's when that happened, but the persecution really started, I would say, in 339 to 379 AD. Now, um, on my, uh, so let's look at the theology of that prayer, La Chumara. So in English, to you, O Lord of all, we thank. To you, Jesus Christ, we praise. So I think it's very fascinating. To you, O Lord of all, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to address the Father. 
when we say that God is oftentimes, God the Father is oftentimes called the Lord of all. Um, and then to you, Jesus Christ, we praise. Obviously, that's addressed to the second person of the Trinity. So first off, these people are being killed. They're not, they're not worshiping the sun in the sky. They're worshiping the sun in heaven, S-O-N. And uh, they're, they're proclaiming their thanks to God, our, to the Lord of all we think, as they're being killed. To Jesus Christ, we praise. And Shephena, it's also a way of saying worship. Um, and and they're, they're proclaiming, their, their, they're professing their allegiance, their loyalty to God, the sun, instead of the sun in the sky. It's very beautiful when you put those images next to each other. For you are the giver of life to our bodies. They're actually saying that they're confident that their life is going to become uh, restored. And the savior of our souls, like you, you are the one that's going to be saving us. So the theology is very beautiful when you look at this event. Now, uh, there's a couple of things I want to say. I've done a lot of research, Sean, in trying to find out like where that prayer is rooted in history, like that we said that. Our people said that while they were being killed. I haven't been able to find any. But and we've asked Bishop Ibrahim, who's a master of the history of our church, um, our former bishop of our diocese, and he says it's, it's, it's just tradition that this is passed on. But in my research, I've looked far and wide, and I've seen in different priests all throughout the world quoting the same story in different dioceses, and uh, Indian priests as well mm-hmm. referencing the story. I would say this oral tradition is very strong, and, and, and present uh, throughout different places, even throughout the world. So I would say it's true. It's okay to associate. And I also show evidence for that one, one strong actually argument for it, rather. Because I just mentioned, we talked to the Father, we talked to the Son. Where's the Holy Spirit? We didn't say anything with the Holy Spirit. You know why, Sean? Because that prayer is so old. You know, there's another two titles for that prayer. Their one title is called the Song of Adam. The Adam saying ah. that song. I'll tell you why. And the other song wow. title it's got is called The Resurrection Hymn. Why? Because when Jesus was killed on the cross, there's a very unique scripture passage that many people can't explain in the Roman Catholic Church, but that we talk about a lot in our right. And that's that the, the graves of the, the saints were opened and they were praising God. And it's like, what? The record skip? Like, what did they just say? So it's yeah. by our tradition, very strong tradition and written tradition, not just oral. They, we say that Adam sang that song and that uh, it was the resurrection hymn, you know, that we're professing wow. Jesus' divinity. Now, why is it the Holy Spirit mentioned? Because if you look at the history of the early church, when Jesus rose up and ascended into heaven, he didn't leave down something that we call today the Catechism of the Catholic Church, very neatly bound and, and bowed and tied up. No, people were asking questions in the first couple hundred years, like, first off, who the heck was this Jesus guy? Was he Superman? Was he a mix between man and God? Was he a blend? Was he 100% God, 100% man? You know, what was he? And then the question of who the Holy Spirit was able to be asked after that was more defined and refined. So this prayer is so old, we didn't even mention the Holy Spirit. In the prayer of itself, it's showing how old it was. It could have been a couple of things. It could have been a creed for us, like the way we profess our faith. And it also could have been an opening hymn for Mass. Because we didn't have, again, a formal gathering in a church. It was illegal to be Christian for us for a very long time because we were never in the Roman Empire. And it could have been an opening hymn, which is why we have it in the beginning as well of our Mass, where um, people would gather in a house, you know, and someone would say, aman, Let us pray, peace be with us. Everybody be quiet because, you know, Middle Easterners in the room, they, they don't yeah, know. They'd be talking. quiet. <laughs> so <Yeah>. that we, <laughs> the mass would start with that hymn. So I, this is just to say a few things about that prayer in and of itself. The ancient antiquitous uh, uh, characteristic of that prayer is something to be very proud of when you say the mass. So you know everything you just said right now just proves how ancient and how beautiful our actual rite is. And I, you know I think it's awesome that until today, modern times, we still say the same exact prayer. That was said in ancient times. And you, you mentioned something that I, I want to touch on. You said, I've researched everywhere and it's not written down. So it's just oral tradition. You know, but if you think about it, and you said this, you said this too, when Jesus rose from the dead and he talked to his disciples, he didn't say, go write this down. He said, go and preach. So everything was done through oral tradition. So many of the things that in the Catholic church today that we, that separate us from like Protestants or whatever they, you know, Hey, where do you find this in the Bible? No, it's just oral tradition that we have. So I feel like a lot of the stuff that we do believe in, in the Catholic faith 
is through oral tradition as much as it is through written tradition. Um, you agree? My comment to that, Sean, would be uh, it's not a topic on that. It's got to be flushed out a little more. Uh, I would just nuance it to say that uh, a lot of our teachings are vast, vast, vast majority actually explicitly or implicitly in the scriptures, even in written traditions. I don't want to downplay our own um, uh, weight of, of our own theology uh, out of the scriptures. We actually have massive, massive amounts of foundational in written tradition as well. But the scriptures themselves do say to follow written and oral tradition in Second Thessalonians Correct. 2, verse 15. Uh, Brethren, hold fast to the traditions that we passed on, whether by written or oral. That's what it says. But I don't want to get into that because... No, we won't. Thing, we won't. You know, but I'll just, I'll just fine-tune that just a little bit before I move on so that it's uh, not mis- I'm not misquoted or I'm not like... Of course. Yeah. So another thing I want to touch on, um, I forgot which priest once said this in, in the Mass. He said um, the, the Divine Mercy, he was in Jerusalem and the Divine Mercy was being prayed in and one of the one of the bishops there was like, hey, you know, I know you're from the Eastern, right? So if you don't want to pray, this is not part of your right. And then he did like a little bit of research and he realized that the the, the prayer that they pray, that Jesus told St. Faustina to pray, that the, um, uh, what is it? Holy God, Holy Mighty One, Holy Immortal One. We say that in our mass. And so, and I know our mass has been written for a long time. So this was ingrained in our mass before the divine mercy actually came out. Am I correct on that? Uh, yeah, but I, I don't want to burst your bubble. <laughs> okay. Uh, that prayer, we took that prayer. I'm looking it up as we speak because I have it in my notes. Um, uh, just give me a moment. I'm almost there. So that prayer, the Trisagion, was added uh, and taken from other, other rites. And uh, between 540 and 552 AD, uh, from one of our patriarchs, Mar Abba the Great, Mar Abba Rabba. Uh, so, although that, that yeah, still very ancient. for us, the 500s, but that existed beforehand. We took it from other churches. But that's, yeah, it is an older, older yeah. prayer. Yeah. But it is an older prayer that we even, we, we've been saying for, like I said, since the 500s, which yeah. is beautiful. There, there, there are a lot of beautiful things in, in our Mass. And that's something I wanted to talk to you about. So people often talk, you know, especially here in Michigan, they say, hey, you know, what's nothing, nothing wrong with me going to a Latin Rite Mass, even though I am part of the Eastern Rite tradition. And I tell them, like, listen, there is nothing wrong, because like how you said, we're all in full communion with one church, one Catholic church. But what are your thoughts on, um, on that? So the Chaldean Rite isn't better than any other Rite, nor is any other Rite better than our Rite. You have conflicts. You have conflicts of of uh, thoughts that you might might you know come to you when you say to yourself like this past Sunday was uh, New Sunday in our tradition, which most Galileans don't know in the West. They know that as Divine Mercy Sunday, and as a priest, I say, which one do I talk about? You know, and I blend them together actually in this case because they're both very closely knitted. Um, I would discourage. Uh, in general, for example, Galileans from participating in Ash Wednesday because of the spiritual mode we take on for Lent is different than the Roman Catholic Church. Ours is a positive approach because we're looking forward to transformation, not a publicly mourning approach where they show that they're mourning in, in, a, in a public state. So um, those are things that uh, they, they, don't, they don't fit well together. Now, in general, if somebody is raised in the Roman Catholic Church, there's nothing wrong with that. Just it is what it is. But I would say um, in the same way that you're born to your family, the AR family, you know, by, by, by nature of that, by God putting you in that family, you have a responsibility to that family, at least to know it and a commitment to it. And it should be something of extraordinary, uh, as an extraordinary case, where you are giving your first priority to another family besides your own. So as an analogy, I would say for our own people, you know, um, it's not evil. It's not, it's not morally wrong uh, to, to go to a Roman Catholic church. But I would say you do have a responsibility to your church, especially to your local church. Um, when you consider our church as something that's 
and to some extent, uh, on the threat of extinction, obliteration, we're already being physically annihilated by uh, persecutions in the Middle East, you know, uh, not to mention our, our existence and our identity is uh, culturally being annihilated in the West, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. So I would say uh, looking at the, the surface, just basic glancing over it shows that there is a need at home to uh, first off to understand who you are, where you come from, and to uh, address those needs and, and to contribute to those needs uh, before you address your neighbor's needs. You know, God puts you in this case, so you have responsibility to it. And the church uh, also promotes that idea as well as a whole, as a universal whole in the documents. But um, again, if, if it's an extraordinary case, you just happen to be raised in, in the Roman Catholic Church, it's who you relate with, it's what you associate with. There's nothing morally wrong with that. As long as you're receiving Jesus Christ in the end of the day, as long as you're, you're eating spiritual food of Jesus Christ genuinely and wholesomely, then that's all I care about. Because the Chaldean right, maybe one day it will die. Maybe one day the Syrian or the Syrian Church will die. The other. Maybe the uh, well, the Greek Church will die out. I don't know. But Jesus Christ will never die out. That's a more important priority. But I'm just answering this on a, another level of like, yeah, you're born this. Look at the f- surface level. You need to address some of these things. You have responsibility right. of some of these things. Does that make sense, Sean? No, that's, that's actually beautifully put. Um, I just wanted to get your thoughts on it because I myself agree with you. Nothing wrong with going to Latin. I was, like I said, I was raised and educated in Latin righteous, and I love it. It's just that, like how you said, I have a passion and a connection to my right as well. And, and That's Sean, what I was baptized in and everything confirmed yeah. in. And Sean, many people that don't uh, have a big connection to their church uh, also are very ignorant of their own church. I would say most yeah. of them, they don't know what they're missing. They don't because they don't know how to love their church. Or they don't understand their church. Well, that's the issue with a lot of Eastern right uh, faiths because you know we we had to translate stuff ourselves. Things weren't in English and in, in mass when we were in Iraq. Now we have like I, I had to research and translate a lot myself to get to where I'm at right now, or ask a lot of questions nice. in Surat or in, in Aramaic just to like see where where uh this this how to translate in english and to communicate to others a lot of these things i'm saying to you for example in this conversation so a lot of people don't know why they should appreciate their church which is a fault of the church too you know for instance you like you see a lot of uh, our faithful have devotions to saint anthony saint dominic saint rita uh saint uh, padre pio uh but you don't hear about uh saint barbara saint sultan mahdocht marpithion Father Rahid, and uh, what have you. So, uh, I was going to ask you that. So, yeah, so I was going to ask, so like when you say Father, so when you say St. Patrick or Padre Pio or, you know, St. George, you know right away who they are because that's what St. We George is ours. St. George is ours. We love St. Right, George. We'll take St. Fine, we'll take St. George. So, but th- that's what I was going to get to. So, there are, you just named a few uh, of our Eastern Rite saints that we should we should try to know a little bit more about because they're part of our right. Like how you said, you know, we talk, we talk about all these saints, which are wonderful saints. And I pray to them all the time. Um, but it, it'd be awesome to know, uh, and if you, if you wouldn't mind, just for uh, the sake of uh, our audience, a few we, of those we, saints that you just, just wanna, mentioned. I just want to interrupt you. We pray through the saints to Jesus who takes our prayers to the Father, right? Of course, of course. Good. Good. They're not the end yeah. all. They're not the final goal. Oh no, of course not. But it would Side be cool up. to do a novena. It would be a cool to do a novena or a prayer with one of our Eastern Rite saints as well. I, I was writing one. I just never f- finished it. I was writing one a few years ago on Marpithion, one of my favorite ones. Uh, but I just didn't conclude it. But uh, I guess I'll talk about him for a second because you said to mention who our saints are. Yeah. So you just heard about Marshmoon Barsabai earlier, the patriarch that faithfully uh, committed to Christ until death, despite seeing all the uh, persecution he and his church went through. Uh, Marpithion was a monk who lived by himself in the 300s. And uh, there was a young, famous, uh, was a famous governor, we'll call him, ruler of the area, who was not Catholic, who was not Christian. His daughter was sick. He sent her over to him. He healed her. He sent her back. 
she got sick again, and he, he got, she got sent to him again, but he told her, unless you become baptized, this will, will always impact you. She had a dream that night. She trans, uh, converted her name to St. Enahid. Um, and uh, eventually her father was impacted by this. He was killed. She was killed and tortured. There's a massive testimony that we have about her. And then he was killed and tortured as well. Uh, but there are a lot of miracles associated with the, the, the suffering that he underwent. But for me, you know, you hear about the reputation of this girl, Anahid. She was pure. She was beautiful. But this guy was faithful. He was committed to God. And um, he brought her from errors of, of, of falsehood, of, of misteaching, and brought her to the truth. And he never strayed away. I know I love him because he's what, someone we need today. There's, there, we're littered with falsehood. We're littered with lost people, with sick people. And he was, you know, he's always called pure in our prayers, in our Chaldean book, yeah. booklet prayers, our, 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 our breviary, we'll call it. Uh, he's called pure. And like, I think that's a beautiful word because of the need of purity today, especially he was before a beautiful woman, saw, saw through that to, to bring her to Christ and uh, stayed faithful and brought her to truth in a time that there was a lot of confusion. It's like, wow, what more do you need as a, uh, as a saint that's needed for today? Someone who's clear and saying the truth. When I, my sister told me if uh, I wanted, I can name one of my nephews. So I told her, name him Pithion, after Mark Pithion. Yeah. She said, said no. nice. So uh, <laughs> she said, give me another name. No, no, I, I gave her what Elijah. What about Andrew? Yeah, <laughs> right? <laughs> but he was baptized in the name no. of Pithion. That's beautiful, actually. So I know, so Marade and Marmari, they're also one of our saints as well, correct? Yeah, yeah. So saints Ade and Mari... Uh, there's great stories associated with them, like when, say, Edde first came to the Middle East, and um, uh, there was a king, Ag- Agbar, or Abgar, Agbar, I think. He wrote a letter to Jesus. This is big-time tradition. Huh? He wrote a letter to Jesus, and Jesus wrote him back. They say, Jesus never wrote anything, huh? But he was saying, uh, come here, I want to hear about you. And I hear there's enemies. I'll, I'll destroy them for you, the Jews. And Jesus said, I'm here for the lost you of Israel. Anyway, so he said, I'll send someone to you, Jesus said that. So St. Thomas drops off Maradé. Maradé says, I believe in Jesus. So King Abgar's daughter was sick. And Maradé said, I'll heal her. And he healed her. He said, now tell me about Jesus. He said, I'll only tell you about him if you let me have the ground uh, floor, as an open mic kind of, you know, in front of all the people yeah. in the square. So he did that. He preached to everyone in the square and everyone was converting. And that's how our church started. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a beautiful story, actually. Yeah, isn't that cool? So like Mar Ed Day was associated yeah. with that, you know? And of course, they're associated with the, the writing of the first uh, Eucharistic prayer of our Mass, uh, which is called Kudasha of Mar Ed Day and Mari, the Anaphora of Ed Day and Mari, the Eucharistic prayer of Ed Day and Mari, yeah. which, which uh, St. John Paul II himself said, I believe it was 1999 or four or five. Sorry, I'm really off. Okay. Uh, and then a document uh, uh, that it was one of the most ancient uh, Eucharistic prayers in all of Christendom. Uh, and the most this least changed. This is St. John Paul II? Yeah, he said and it was the least changed of all the, the prayers in all of Christendom, of, of, of the Eucharistic prayers. Oh, that's beautiful. That, that, yeah. That's actually something beautiful. To, we should be honored by that, that, that our, one of our patron saints, or, or one of our, when our first patriarchs wrote that. So here's, here's what it is. I'll read the quote. The anaphora of Ed Day and Mari is notable because from time immemorial, it has been used without a recitation of the institution narrative. We didn't even say, this is my body, this is my blood. But they concluded in 2001 uh, that this Eucharistic prayer is considered valid with the Congregation of Doctrine of Faith, with at the time Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope, Pope Benedict. The last thing I'll read is a quote from that same document. The anaphora of Ed de Amari is one of the most ancient anaphoras dating back to the time of the very early church. What I was quoting from just now is the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity with the guidelines for administration, um, admission to the Eucharist between Chaldean Church and the Assyrian Church of the East. Now, this was done, I was wrong about my numbers. It was 2001, uh, October 25th. So, like, beautiful. Yeah. So, we have old, ancient, beautiful stuff. So the last thing I want to touch on, you were talking about different traditions that we have in our right versus other rights in the church. Um, and one thing, so one of the ones that you mentioned that I did want to talk about was like the Ba'utha, right? So a lot of times we, born in America, or, you know, part of the Latin right, we do the Ba'utha because our parents tell us, 
or because we heard the story of Jonah and the whale. But so tell us a little bit about this uh, prayer and why it's so beautiful and why it's so important in our, in our right. So Ba'uth has started in the early centuries uh, when there was a pandemic, an epidemic like today, uh, very applicable for today. And um, there were scores of people who were dying. And so as a result, the patriarch called for an intense fast and prayer, uh, similar and likened to the Ninevites who were preached to by Jonah and the book of Jonah um, and how God told them, you know, in three days, uh, Nineveh will be destroyed. So um, in this case, the, um, uh, the prayer and the fasting began. And after three days, all those who were sick were healed. And the epidemic, the pandemic, and the, the famine, or the, the killing off of vegetation stopped. Um, so uh, that prayer was, was announced to be prayed every single year after that uh, to guard ourselves from falling into like godlessness so that God can always protect us from things like that famine and uh, that epidemic that was, was taking place. So in the prayers about with the, uh, we do a lot of penitential actions like kneeling and standing. Like, oh, I tell people don't go to leg day, you know, those days because you're not going to make it. Yeah. Uh, extended prayers of the deepest theological beauty that really, I, I was praying them this year, Sean. And like, honestly, I found myself when I was in the chapel, like I just had to put the book down and stop and be like, bro, I got to like think about this. Like what I just read hit me so hard. Like it's, it's very rich poetry. Uh, the crown of our jewels of our prayers, of our theology, a lot of it's present in the Ba'utha prayers, uh, written by our early church fathers, like St. Ephraim and others, even Narsay probably penned some of those prayers. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a, a very beautiful tradition that's unique to us. Um, if you don't mind, I want to share one with you uh, that uh, uh, I, I experienced this year in Australia that I never knew about. Of okay. course. I'm going to play a little bit of it. Let me know if it's working first, and then I'll start continuing it. Okay? I'm going to just play a sample of it. there um it's it's really long the whole uh exchange is three minutes and 51 seconds i just played 38 seconds of it so what's happening in that there is uh on the easter eve mass on the high mass there's the altar in the sanctuary a chair is placed in front of the altar in the sanctuary okay like you know the end of the altar all the way at the end the sure. chair is placed facing the choir like it's facing sideways if you're sitting in the congregation. And another chair is placed on the other side of the altar facing that chair. Two Shamasha deacons sit down. They face each other. Everyone's sitting down in the church. And what, one of them, what you just heard just now, one of them is singing Qum Shapir. It's the introduction, introduction of the petitions. Let us all stand well. We say that in Mass every Sunday. Let us stand well, enjoying gladness. Let us implore and say, Lord, have mercy on us. And that's what he's saying. But the way he's saying it is extremely uh, comforting and upbeat uh, compared to our other tones. This is extremely joyful and it's emotional. It's full, packed full of emotion. Uh, and he sings it and then the Shamasha across from him sitting down sings it back. And then he sings it a third time and everyone stands. And they are representing the angels in the tomb of Jesus, the two white angels, clothed in white. Oh, wow. Uh, pronouncing their resurrection on Easter oh, wow. Eve. And so everybody in the church stands to honor that. And the emotion that's attached to that and the, the, the beauty uh, behind the richness is, is like really emotional. It made me emotional really when it was happening. And I, I, didn't really, I never had the privilege to see that 
And the reason is because in, in America, we have like seven masses on Saturday. We barely have time to fit in our traditions anymore. But here they had the luxury because of the coronavirus to, to do all the prayers. And that really, really uh, made a big impression on me. Uh, it's just one of the examples of, of the beauty of our tradition. One of the many. That's beautiful. Father Matthew, I want to thank you again uh, for coming on and explaining to us all the beauties and the, rich, uh, the beauties and the riches of our Eastern Rite faith, our Chaldean Rite. Um, I want to leave with this thought for everyone at, on the podcast. So the canon law of, says this about the Eastern churches. It defines the rite as follows. The rite is the liturgical and theological, spiritual and disciplinary heritage distinguished according to the people's culture and historical circumstances that finds expression in the autonomous church's way of living the faith. So, hence, it defines the rites concerns not only of the people's liturgy, like the manner of the way they worship, but also the theology, the understanding of the actual doctrine and the spirituality, the prayer and devotion of how we actually do the present devotion and the discipline of canon law. So you said it beautifully, Father, and I thank you again for saying this. Uh, there's nothing wrong with going to the Latin rite or any other rite, but if we have our own rite, and in any rite, it doesn't have to be the Chaldean rite, any rite that you specifically have, it's like having your own family, but then going and doing the traditions of your neighbor or your friends, all of their traditions. So I urge all of our listeners, whatever rite you do belong to, is I mean, I'm happy that you belong to the Catholic Church, but whatever right you do belong to, that you do invest your time and learn more and more about your actual right. So, like I close with um, every podcast with this closing line, remember to go forth and remember that you have the right to be Catholic. God bless everybody. You have been listening to an ECRC Martoma Productions podcast. To learn more about ECRC and all of our programs, go to ecrc.us.